This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, we're going to be looking at this theme of transforming self and world from two different directions. And you can probably imagine what those directions might be. Self and world. (laughs) And um, I'm here to talk a bit about the, um, the first of those transforming self Um, transforming self but uh, you can't really transform self without transforming the world around you and you can't transform the world around you or engage with that without transforming yourself Uh, so they are intimately linked but you can start from different directions and um, last year uh, when we did the urban retreat last year we focused quite a bit on the life of one particular of uh, our teachers, teachers, um, Sangharakshita is on the shrine, but uh, his teacher, Dado Rinpoche, was uh, one of the, well, the focus. And he was a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who Sangharakshita reckoned was, as far as he was concerned, an example of a living bodhisattva, a bodhisattva being one who's dedicated his or her life to the benefit of all beings. Um, and uh, one of the... Uh, we, we watched a video about Dardo Rinpoche, about him talking, about his life, about his day, about what he did. Um, he spent all day, virtually, you know, working um, with... Uh, he, he founded and ran a Tibetan school for children um, and talked whoever came, that was his whole day, was basically working for the sake of others. Except that he also got up at 4am and while he was brushing his teeth he was visualising one particular bodhisattva while he was, uh, you know, he would, he would start at 4am and practice for four hours <coughs> before then spending the rest of the day. Um, and it seems to me those two are linked. He was able to spend his whole day devoting himself to the benefit of other people because he spent four hours in the morning devoting himself to to his own benefit or the benefit of transforming his own mind. So um, these are linked. These are are linked. And in order to cultivate this kind of bodhisattva spirit... um, we also need to cultivate our own minds. Now, four hours a day, I know, is asking a lot. <laughs> um, but something every day is, is worth committing to. Um, it's what gives us the motivation. It's what gives us the robustness. What gives us the sort of fertile mind or um, ability to respond. So this is why we're looking at uh, transforming self. Um, but... We're looking at it from oh, also from a particular angle. Um, there's um, there's, a, there's a book which is a kind of you know for this particular part of the theme. This book, Sangharakshita, Ritual and Devotion in Buddhism, is you know if you want to buy this book, I think we have copies in the bookshop, or you can order them. Um, this is in a way the sort of theme book for the, this this part of the theme. Um, because we're going to be looking at the puja, the sevenfold puja, and it's in its stages. Now, I'd just actually like to start by um, this, these words, ritual and devotion. I'd just like to get a sense of what responses do you have to those words immediately? You know, just, just say it. Positive, negative, neutral, ritual and devotion. Negative. Because of my Negative. Upbringing. Because of your upbringing, yeah. which was Catholic. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, you don't have to say positive, negative, or neutral. You can use other words as well. What, what comes to your mind with those? Yeah, well, negative as well. Yeah. Like from a Catholic family as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Variable. Yeah. Variable. Sometimes wonderful, sometimes the double direction. Yes. Ambivalence. Yes. I started off very wary, mm. but actually letting go, yeah, uh, yeah, just oh, has opened up a huge vista which I never mm. knew or never anticipated would mm. happen. Mm. <coughs> yeah. I think it can be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Can mm. be. Can be uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. Mostly uncomfortable. Mostly uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I find it quite expensive. Expensive. Very uplifting. Uplifting. Well, at first I found it alienating. Alienating. And I have found it inspiring. But and now inspiring. Very yeah, sure. I find it quite strange. Strange. Especially yeah. ritual. Yes. More than devotional something. Yes, ritual. Yes, yes. Yeah. I like ritual. Yes. I think it acts on parts of the mind where logic doesn't reach. Yes. That's true. Yes. And devotion, I'm not too sure what it means. Okay. Okay, maybe, you know, that will become clearer as we're mm. talking about it. Yes. It's interesting that there's not a lot of neutrality going on here, is there? <laughs> there's, there's the uncomfortable, you know, the, the negative response, and then sometimes a very positive response as well. There's, there's not a lot of the... Well, maybe some of you are, do feel lukewarm and neutral towards ritual. Just uh, haven't maybe said... Maybe less easy to say so. Yes, less easy to say a, a neutral response. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I just so we're going to be exploring this theme through the puja, through the stages of the puja, and uh, and we're going to give time to each stage because I think one of the things to do is to uh, familiarise ourselves or become more, you know, to get to understand what what the stages are, what their significance is. That's what we're going to be doing, and uh, I must say, you know, it's interesting to hear the responses because I think. We do bring quite a lot of uh, previous conditioning to uh, ritual um, in Buddhism. Obviously, we've had conditionings maybe to do with uh, other religious backgrounds, um, where ritual is a lot to do with maybe guilt. I remember I was was brought up in a Protestant tradition, and uh, there weren't very many rituals in that, but uh, there was communion where you were eating the body and drinking the blood mm-hmm. of Christ, which found, I found fairly disgusting <laughs> as an idea. I, I was, never grew up, you know, I didn't ever participate in that, but uh, that was a ritual, but um, it has, you know, it has an emotional impact. So, so there may be those sorts of associations with rituals that maybe feel um, uncomfortable or alienating, there may also be associated with rituals which have just become somewhat hollow or meaningless because you don't actually believe in the the values behind them. And so I think I remember school assembly when I stopped believing in God just became a rather meaningless ritual for me. Um, so that's the I think that's the sort of element of alienation that can happen. So yeah, these are these are our responses, and uh, and we need to acknowledge that they're there. You know, we don't have to like ritual because it's one of the practices we do. It's a question of uh, getting to know ourselves in relation to them. But I, I do want to sort of um, suggest that ritual is actually all around us. Um, ritual is part of everyday life. Um, I mean, there's the bigger rituals. If you think of uh, rituals that surround Christmas, think of the colours that are involved with Christmas. Think of the the red of the forest. Oh, sorry, the the green of the forest. 
and the red of berries, the red of fire. Think of the darkest time of the year when we create light. We have fairy lights and candles and all of that kind of thing. It's as if we have a kind of real human need in that darkest time of the year to sort of connect with light and connect with those kind of very prime, primeval colours as well. It comes out of our connection with uh, the natural world, and with the seasons. Uh, think of Easter with eggs. <laughs> I don't know what chocolate's got to do with it. Maybe it's in there somewhere. Um, revival, you know, springtime, flowers, bunnies. Um, yeah, they, 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 they are part of our kind of connection with the natural world and the seasons these rituals and human rituals too I think you know when you invite or somebody arrives in your house what do you do offer them a cup of tea you offer them a cup of tea is it because they're thirsty (laughs) (laughs) or you offer them a drink usually Um, and you usually accept a cup of tea whether or not you're thirsty Um, there's a sort of it's like an offering you know, somebody's arrived in your space. You want to give them something. And also think, what does the, what's the thing that you give? It's liquid. It's something fluid. And uh, in the in sort of symbolism of the, the different elements, liquid is often to do with emotion, fluidity, exchange. So when you're offering somebody a hot drink or even a cold drink, you're offering a sort of a connection you're both drinking some fluid together. And uh, so it's a ritual, really. It's a ritual. There's lots of these rituals around which we um, perform in all sorts of ways, consciously or unconsciously. If you start to actually look at some of our, a lot of our behaviour, there's ritual involved. You meet somebody, you don't immediately start talking about the, you know, the most important, in-depth you know, kind of issue that's going on in your life or well, maybe you do but usually you start by exchanging a bit of you know lighter communication to make each other feel at ease and find out how one each other are you know that sort of thing it's a bit of a ritual exchange yeah. I, want, I want to just very very do a little ritual right now it's very very simple I want you to find a partner it's only. It's going to be very simple. Don't worry about this. The person sitting next to you, and what I want you to do is just face one another, and uh, one of you make eye contact and bow to the other person, and then the other person make eye contact and bow back. That's all. So, bowing the hands. <laughs> Okay, you're done. (laughs) Only takes a moment. (laughs) What did that feel like? Connecting. Connecting. Warm. Warm. Did it feel different bowing or being bowed to? Yes. In what way? I really enjoy bowing. Yes. It gave me an action. When I was bowed to, I kind of thought, oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes. kind of, I liked it, but at the same time, it was so strange. Who yes. am to be bowed to? Exactly. <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It wasn't like no, that, but it was something strange that wasn't in my bowing. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It's odd, yes. Isn't it? it's odd, and I think all that demonstrates what that demonstrates is that ritual, even a simple ritual like that, has a sort of sudden emotional impact, yeah. one way or the other. You know, you immediately feel something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, felt mm-hmm. like giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. I was quite strange. I, I, I really enjoyed the eye contact. Mm-hmm. And when the bowing happened, I sort of felt, I lost it. You lost the contact at that point, yes. Lost contact, yes. Yeah, yes. It was one of the things I noticed when I visited India, is, is that's the common greeting, is to bow to one another. 
rather than shake hands or whatever. It, it's, it's actually lovely. <laughs> a sort of kind of sense of a mutual respect, you know, just acknowledgement. So, ritual, yeah. It's, it is very much a part of traditional Buddhism. Um, in fact, in some ways, it's much more basic part of traditional Buddhism than meditation. Um, if you're in Thailand or um, with Tibetan Buddhists, you'll find that the primary in, um, practice that they engage with is making offerings, is maybe chanting some verses, um, you know, chanting ritual, that kind of thing, um, and um, yes, and so this is uh, this is interesting because it's not necessarily the way we engage with Buddhism in the West so much. We tend to start with meditation and, and gradually kind of um, get more familiar with ritual. I mean, we do, for example, always chant the refuges and precepts at the start of a. Of a, of a Saturday morning, which is of course a ritual chanting, um, but sometimes it can be that it's a, our first way in is through meditation. Um, some while ago, I remember watching a film which um, showed a Tibetan puja, uh, which had the subtitles, you know, the the translation of what was being chanted. This was a very long film. It went on for about three hours. <laughs> and uh, I sat there and watched this. <laughs> I, I can't say it engaged my uh, interest all the way through. But something that really, really struck me as uh, I was watching the ritual, which was very, very elaborate, with a lot of hand movements, mudras, offerings, music, drums, and chanting. And the words were just very, very, very repetitive. And what they were saying over and over again was, oh, I'm, I'm getting quite moved just from that. May all beings be well. May all beings be happy. May this offering be for the benefit of all beings. May this other offering, may this chant, may the, you know, over and over and over three hours, you know. Um... And, you know, if you just kind of let go and let this kind of really sink in, you realise that this ritual must have a very, very profound impact on our minds and consciousness to be cultivating that wish over and over and over and over again. Because this is one of the features of ritual. It is actually repetitive. Um, we do the same rituals. That's partly what makes them rituals. Um, the same words. And in some ways, I remember I used to feel quite resistant to this. I'd want a bit of novelty, you know. Sevenfold puja. Do something different, you know. Or whatever. Um, but there is something about this repetition, again, that goes in. That goes in and um, creates a sort of, um, well, let's say positive condition response. It's a sort of steeping oneself in aspiration. Mm. Yeah. <coughs> I just um, remember that uh, on, on one retreat I was on um, where we... It was quite a long retreat and we were doing a particular puja, not the sevenfold puja, but a particular puja every night. Um, a puja called the uh, Sutra of Golden Light Puja. And it's very long. And it would tend to happen at the end of the day. And I'd be really tired and I'd feel, this is going to go on forever, <laughs> you know. And after a few nights of resistance and sort of feeling, I'm just tired, I want this to be over, I remember all of a sudden I heard the words in a new way. And it was as if something cracked open in me. And, I mean, it's called the Sutra of Golden Light. It felt like suddenly being flooded with golden light. And that the words which I was kind of resisting were carrying a meaning that were more than words. Um, it was, you know, it was one of those experiences where I sort of, like I got it in a certain way. So, yeah. So, um... Just a 
little bit of historical background here. I think going right back to the time of the Buddha. Um, after the Buddha died, um, his disciples, the, the particular places where he stayed, in particular was a, 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 a hut or dwelling in, in Shravasti, which was called the Gandakuti, or the perfume chamber. So this was a place where he spent many rainy seasons. He gave many teachings. And after he died, this place um, continued to be kept as if he was present. It was swept, it was um, offerings would be brought. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so, so treated as, as a place of devotion or a place of reverence. Now the thing is that it's not that the disciples at that time believed that the Buddha was still there because they were Buddhists. They knew that all conditioned things come to an end. They'd heard that teaching over and over again. But that place was somehow permeated with a sense of meaning, of significance, of value for them. And being there brought the Buddha to mind. It sort of brought him to life for them in their imagination in their mind. And in a way, this is the sort of um, background or the, um, the purpose of puja. What we're doing is creating a sense, first of all, of presence, a sense of what would it be like to be with our teacher, the Buddha? What would it be like to be in his presence? We have a shrine which, you know, there's an image of the Buddha. We know that that's not a magic image which somehow <coughs> is the Buddha, but it calls the Buddha to mind. This one in particular calls to mind an active um, a walking Buddha, teaching Buddha, that particular quality of communication. So the image calls the Buddha to mind. It calls forth, I suppose, that uh, quality within ourselves. You know, an image of the Buddha is an image of humanity, humanity um, perfected, humanity um, grown and developed, our own human qualities developed to um, the greatest possible extent. And so that's where Ipuja begins, is with a sense of cultivating, a sense of presence, a sense of contact, however that works for you. So it's sometimes quite good to begin before performing a puja to just sit with a sense of uh, presence. I think Amara Pushpa mentioned that this morning um, when she began to lead the meditation to you know, just have a sense of presence using the imagination. What would it be like to be in the presence of the Buddha? So, so the particular sevenfold puja that we do um, derives from a, a text, a particular book or text by, um, this is it, the Bodhicharya Some of you may know it, some of you not. Um, it was a teaching given by a Buddhist teacher, 8th century Buddhist teacher called Shantideva. And uh, the story goes that um, he was in a monastery in Nalanda and he was reckoned to be a rather lazy monk and uh, the other monks didn't rate him very highly uh, because he never seemed to be doing anything very much. Um, it was said that he practised the three realisations which were eating, sleeping and defecating. So, um, you can see that even in a Mahayana monastery there's still unpleasant teasing and gossip going on. Anyway, so, so in order to sort of show him up, um, he was invited to give a teaching. So he was invited to give a teaching and he uh, turned up um, on the day and he sat on the throne whatever and he began to speak and this was the teaching that he gave so the Bodhi Charivatara guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life um, which is I, I think I mean I do very much recommend reading 
it maybe just looking at you know taking a few verses um, it's a very very uh, well, it's a very Mahayana <coughs> book Mahayana is generally speaking uses quite poetic language quite um, emotional language often quite extreme language um, you know quite uncompromising language um, but it's also very, very beautiful, very, very inspiring. Anyway, it's said that when he got to the ninth chapter, which was the perfection of understanding, he began to rise up in the air, float above the throne, and, uh, and gradually disappear from view, although his voice was still heard continuing the teaching. Now, obviously, this is a legend. It's a rather lovely legend. Apparently, he began to rise up in the air uh, at verse 34. <laughs> I bet you're interested in what it says. <laughs> okay, I'll read it to you. I don't think you'll be any the wiser, but this is verse 34, where he says, Where neither entity nor non-entity remains before the mind, there is no other mode of operation grasping no objects it becomes tranquil oh well so that's the, the point at which he began to vanish and and he vanished from the monastery and never came back he went elsewhere apparently he obviously didn't appreciate his quality so the whole aim of this text is the cultivation of what's called bodhicitta will to enlightenment the um, will to enlightenment, realisation of Buddhahood for the sake of all beings, not for just oneself alone. And, um, that's, the, that's the theme of it. And it's said that there are various traditional means of cultivating bodhicitta, and one of them is performing uh, puja, performing the um, puja which is which comes from the Bodhicharavatara, uh, the sevenfold puja. So, in a way, this is why, you know, the transforming self and world, this is where, where the link happens. <coughs> One of the traditional means is puja, to cultivate this compassionate wish for the benefit of others. And um, so, in a way, we, we need to sort of get behind the, the meaning of puja, what the, the sevenfold puja, what it's about in order to understand why this is reckoned to be such an effective means of transforming the mind. We have our sevenfold puja, and um, it begins with <coughs> the words. It begins with conjuring up flowers as offerings to the Buddha. It begins with the words with mandarava, blue lotus, and jasmine. Um, the very first Buddhist study group I ever participated in years and years ago we were studying the sevenfold puja and we spent the whole first section on with mandarava we didn't get any further than that that's why is that what is mandarava mandarava is a flower <coughs> but it's not a real flower it's not a flower that we can see in a garden anywhere in the world a mandarava is apparently the size of a cartwheel, it's a huge flower, it's golden in colour, and it showers down from the heavens when the Buddha teaches. Presumably it's quite light as well. <laughs> Just imagining cartwheels. <laughs> it lightly floats down from the heavens when the Buddha teaches. So Mandarava is not a real flower. And what this very first two words of the puja is saying is, we're entering into a different kind of realm. We're entering into a realm of imagination rather than a realm of real, real flowers, real earthly flowers. Um, I remember that was the whole theme of that very first study group that I was in. But it's a bit like those words are a sort of portal that you step through into a different and imaginative world. So the puja is somewhere where we are creating an imaginal world, a world where we encounter Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, a world where those archetypal beings are present in our imagination. 
Now, I don't want to say, actually, I hope I didn't just say, or maybe did just say, not a real world. Um, because imagination, in a sense, is as real to us, to our inner selves, as the external world is. What we create in our imagination is as real in terms of its impact on us. Um, we create uh, a realm of imaginal beauty. It has an effect on us, just as if we were walking through a garden. So imagination is very important. So I'm going to go through, briefly go through the stages of the Sevenfold Puja, just to, in a way, outline the map and see what they signify. Because, in a way, what they are are seven devotional moods or mental states that sort of arise one out of the other. They kind of, you know, there's a kind of inner psychology to them and inner logic to them. Out of one state, the next one arises. So I'd just like to kind of show the whole map and then over the next few weeks we'll be looking at each stage in a little more detail. I remember once we did a weekend retreat at Rivendell, which was a puja the whole weekend, simply taking one stage in more depth and detail and then through the day going you know, to the next stage and the next stage. It was a lovely weekend, it was a beautiful weekend, and it really could have brought, brought the puja to life in a way that sometimes uh, doesn't, you know, when you're just doing it quite quickly. But it begins with the first stage of the puja, which is worship. And we, we, we are incidentally going to uh, recite this at the end, so um, we'll, um, we'll get to that. Um, this is so cultivating that sense of presence of the Buddha and making offerings. So there are these um, eight or seven traditional offerings um, which are offered to the honoured guest in India. I mean, in, we, we offer a cup of tea. That's the one traditional offering that we make to the honoured guest. In India, these seven traditional offerings, and these are actually what the seven bowls on the shrine signify. They sort of stand in for these seven traditional offerings, which are, there's flowers, there's incense, there's candles, there's water to drink, water to wash the feet, perfumed water, and food. So if a guest comes to one's house in India, these traditionally would be what would be offered to the guest. So in a sense what's being said is that the Buddha is being treated as the honoured guest. So the Buddha has been invited into the, you know, our ambiance, and these offerings are the offerings that are made. And those are the, the verses of the first um, section of the puja uh, are conjuring up these particular offerings. So then we move on. The second stage is what's called salutation. And so this is where it becomes not just a verbal or a mental offering. Um, it talks about bowing. It talks about saluting the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And in fact, previous to that, we usually chant a mantra where you can come forward and, and bow to the shrine and make offerings. So salutation is, is in a way involving not only our, our speech, our mind, but it's also involving our body. In traditional Buddhism, that these are the three aspects that make up a human being, is body, speech, and mind. And so with salutation... The body's engaged as well. It's brought into sort of physical, you know, actually making a salutation, making a bow. And then out of that, so in these first two stages, there's a sort of sense of devotion that's being cultivated. The third stage of the puja is what's called going for refuge. Um, this is where devotion becomes, well, goes deeper and becomes more a sense of resolution or commitment. So, in going for refuge stage, what we're stating is that we're turning our life towards the three jewels, to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. There's commitment. We're resolving to orient our lives around those, those, um, those values. So, in a sense, it doesn't just stay on the emotional 
devotional level. It becomes a, a volitional, you know, something that's to do with a resolve, a resolve to practice. So, out of that stage, the stage of going for refuge, uh, usually what happens when we commit ourselves to something, um, the next thing that happens is what we experience. I don't know, anybody got any ideas? <laughs> After commitment? Resistance. Resistance. <laughs> yes. After, usually after you resolve to do some, something, even if it's a New Year's resolution or whatever, what arises is what's difficult about that. You know, you've kind of resolved to commit yourself, but then there are forces within yourself that maybe don't want to go along with that. And so the next stage is the stage of confession or disclosure. Um, so we encounter next, the parts of us that don't want to grow, the parts of us that don't want to develop. And at that point, what we're aiming to do is disclose them to ourselves and to others and ritually to the Buddha, to, to sort of, in a way, let go of them. A confession is a word, obviously, which has a lot of um, connotations, religious connotations for us, often related to sin and guilt. And... Obviously, we'll be going into this in a lot more depth when we come to that stage, but really, I just want to say right now, it's got nothing to do with sin and guilt. It's got to do with uh, creating, well, letting go of our resistance and uh, experiencing the, the kind of lightness that comes from that. Which naturally then leads on to the next stage, which is rejoicing in merit. And... Um, Oh, I do, I do, do want to just uh, tell a story. The very first um, retreat that I was on was a weekend retreat, and we had a talk on the Sevenfold Puja, which uh, I listened to with great interest and fascination. And when the, um, the, the chap who was giving the talk got to the point of confession, he was talking about confession very, very beautifully, very fully. He was um, quoting a very uh, story from the book brothers Karamazov. I was very moved by this. And what I thought was going to happen when we went into the puja was that we would all stand up and confess to one another in public. <laughs> and, uh, I was sort of somewhat intrigued and uh, excited by this, but actually when it came to it, I thought, actually that wasn't what happened. I was a bit relieved as well. <laughs> but, hmm. So rejoicing in merit is the next stage. So out of the sense of having let go of resistance, at least within this context of this puja, um, a feeling of relief arises and rejoicing. And rejoicing in merit, it's called. So a sense of the value of um, skillfulness, the value of skillful action, the value of goodness arises. And when our own kind of uh, limitations are kind of set aside. Our hearts do open. Our hearts open to our own worth and to the worth of others. So in this stage, what we're doing is giving expression to that, giving expression to the, the, um, the joy that we experience in human goodness. Gladdened. We feel gladdened. So these stages, we've been through these stages... And we come then to a point which is maybe the heart of the puja. It's what's called entreaty and supplication. So we've been cultivating positive states. Hopefully that's what we've been doing. And at this point we're receptive, we're open. In a way we're ready to hear the Buddha teach. We're ready to hear the truth. So at this point, it's not just that we passively wait for that to happen. There's an actual wish that we express that we may hear the teaching, we may hear the Buddha teach, or we may hear the Dharma. Yeah, we ask for it. We ask for the teaching. And often in the puja at this point, there's a reading, a Dharma reading. So in response to that wish, there's, there's a response. But there's also what follows is the Heart Sutra, the um, sutra which in a way epitomises the, 
the perfection of wisdom, the wisdom of the Buddha. So we repeat that usually in unison. Well, yes, we repeat that in unison. Um, the rest of the puja usually or often takes place in call and response. But at this point, we say it together. And that means we kind of need to learn it by heart, um, which is a very good thing because uh, it's, it's portable dharma, isn't it? It's sort of, if you learn something by heart, it's, uh, it's just always there. And the more that you know it, the more it can come to your mind. I tend to find I often uh, repeat the heart sutra myself when I'm taking off in an airplane. <laughs> I do it at other times, but there's something about that particular point where just leaving land, you know, could die now. Um, <laughs> just leaving the ground. This is a good point to say the heart sutra. But, you know, there are other times too. It's, um, it's there. And when learning something by heart, or, or often, uh, that's a nice expression too, isn't it? It sort of goes into your heart. The more you kind of repeat it, it's part of your heart. So we learn the Heart Sutra and we repeat it together. And seventhly, the final stage of the seventh fold puja is giving all this away, just all the merit accrued. As I was describing the, that Tibetan puja, which was like, whatever we do, we give it away. We give it for the benefit of all. So in this stage, it's that attitude that we're, 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 we're dwelling in, that uh, this may have been a meritorious action to perform, but the merit isn't for much for me. It's for all beings. It's for the sake of all beings. So this is being given away mentally, you know, mentally doing this. Mm. There's, a, there's a verse from the Bodhicharya, from elsewhere in the Bodhicharya, from Puja, where Shantideva says, Nirvana is the giving up of all, and it is Nirvana that my heart yearns for. If I am to give up everything, then let me give it to beings. In a sense, it's a kind of connecting with the the... the the wisdom that actually we don't own anything. We don't even own ourselves. Um, you know, what we're aiming to do through our Dharma practice is let go of self-clinging, let go of that, um, you know, kind of continual concern, you know, limited concern for our own well-being. Um, and uh, so in this in this stage of the puja, it's sort of we're, we're going with that and we're giving it to other beings, not just giving it away, you know, like to sort of lie on the floor, you know, giving up self, and it just sort of lies there on the floor, kind of, uh, there's myself, I don't need it anymore, but just give it to beings. You know? yeah. So that's the whole territory of the Sevenfold Puja. This is, uh, this is the sort of map that we're going to be following over the next few weeks and sort of exploring each of these uh, devotional moods or mental states, one arising out of the other. And hopefully, you know, to give when we do actually perform a sevenfold puja, hopefully imbuing it with more kind of this uh, awareness and meaning and so forth. So, does anybody, we've, we've got time for just uh, a couple of questions. Anybody got anything they want to ask before we move on? fine if you don't because we'll have plenty of time um, what's, what I'd like us to do is to actually you know, repeat the first uh, stage of the sevenfold puja but I'm going to lead up to it with um, a reading, it's kind of embedded within the, the second chapter of the Bodhicharya but there's more, there's more to it than the, the words that we usually use so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read a few more verses than usual, which uh, creates, I think, maybe a kind of fuller sense of the mood that's being evoked in the first stage of the puja, which I described of as that, that sort of offerings, making offerings, conjuring up the sense of the Buddha and making offerings. And in the, in the Bodhicharya what Shantideva does is he just conjures up offering after offering after offering after offering. Um, 
And it's important to do to try and just imagine these. You know, is conjuring up things in in our imagination. Um, all the sort of fruits and flowers and harvests and you know all sorts of things that can we can imagine being conjured up and then just being offered to what we most value to our ideals. So I'll read that and then we'll just move into the three verses which we normally chant in call and response. So you'll recognise those when they come. Um, and then we'll finish um, by chanting the Avalokiteshvara Mantra. Would you like to read that? Would you lead the Avalokiteshvara Mantra? If you want to make offerings, feel free to do that. But I suggest that uh, you don't sort of line up and come slowly. Just feel free to come forward, you know, crowd around the shrine if you like. Don't feel you need to wait. And instead, if you want to make offerings of uh, incense, uh, don't leave them burning or people who have asthma will choke. In order to bring about the arising of that precious jewel of the mind, the bodhicitta, I offer worship to the Buddhas, and to the flawless jewel of the true Dharma, and to the bodhisattvas who are oceans of virtue. I offer to them now as many flowers and fruit as there are in the world, as many healing herbs, as many jewels, and all waters clear and refreshing. I offer mountains made of precious stones and forest groves to be enjoyed in solitude, vines blazing with flowers and trees whose branches bend low with delicious fruit. I offer fragrances of the celestial realms, the wishing tree with fruits of jewels, pools and lakes adorned with lotuses and the endlessly fascinating cry of wild geese. I offer rich harvests, both wild and cultivated. I offer everything that can adorn those worthy of worship and I offer everything which no one owns within the limitless spheres of space. Conjuring all these in my imagination, I offer them to the incomparable sages. O oh, compassionate ones, you who are worthy of the choicest gifts, think kindly of me and accept these offerings of mine. With Mandarava, blue lotus and jasmine, with all flowers pleasing and fragrant. With all flowers pleasing and fragrant. And with garlands skillfully woven. And with garlands skillfully woven. I pay homage. I pay Sorry. homage. I pay honour to the princes of the sages. Sorry. I pay honour to the princes of the sages. So worthy of veneration. So worthy of veneration. I envelop them in clouds of incense. I envelop them in clouds of incense. Sweet and penetrating. Sweet and penetrating. I make them offerings of food hard and soft. I make them offerings of food hard and soft. And pleasing kinds of liquids to drink. And pleasing kinds of liquids to drink. I offer them lamps encrusted with jewels. 
I offer them mass encrusted with jewels. Festooned with golden lotus. Festooned with golden lotus. On the paving sprinkled with perfume. On the paving sprinkled with perfume. I scatter handfuls of beautiful flowers. I scatter handfuls of beautiful flowers. Amen. Mm-hmm.
We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 